For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking to a man who understands the science behind golf clubs. He understands how to get them designed, built, and distributed. He even knows how to market them so that you see them and immediately know you need them in your bag. He's worked with the biggest brand and specialty club builders. These days, he just wants you to enjoy your game. His name is Chris McGinley, and among other things, he is the CEO and founder of the Swing Align Training Guide. He also joins us here on The Range. Chris, it's good to talk to you. Ralph, it's great to be here. Looking forward to our chat. Well, let's start at the very beginning. How did golf enter into your life? <laughs> well, I uh, I was already in, always interested in the game as a young boy, and it was really my grandfather who was the golfer in the family, and he happened to live on a golf course. So I distinctly remember being, you know, six, seven, eight years old, walking along with him while he was uh, walking his dog, and he had a cut down golf club for me and I'd hit balls and we'd walk along and that really hooked me on the game and, uh, you know, played competitively in high school and college. And, uh, I graduated college with an engineering degree and went to work as an engineer for the Westinghouse electric company and really decided I was not a very good engineer and I should probably do something I love. So I got back into the golf business or got into the golf business, uh, as an assistant golf professional, which is sort of a strange detour after getting an en engineering degree. So got to see the game and the business from that side of the counter. That eventually led to me getting into the equipment side of things. And, you know, with an engineering degree, I always loved the equipment side of the business. Was fortunate enough to come along uh, while working as an assistant with a gentleman that had some golf patents and was an inventor and wanted to start a golf company. So ended up doing that, um, slowly worked my way up the food chain, spent 21 years at Titleist as the VP of marketing for golf clubs. And uh, that's kind of, you know, my brief history through the golf industry. Well, say so you jumped ahead and I want to go back to when you were young and competitive. Were you interested in clubs or were you just the type that give me a club and I'll hit it? You know, at that point in time, because there really wasn't a whole lot of club fitting activity or a whole lot of science, it was more an emotional connection to your clubs. I mean, you played something because it looked cool or, you know, I had a Hogan speed slot driver and I had Wilson staff irons because I just thought those were cool. I had no idea if they worked for my game or not. So I wasn't really in, in tune to that aspect yet. So I, I played equipment more for the emotional connection than anything else. Through this show, obviously, I talk to a lot of engineers, I talk to a lot of designers, but I wonder if there's a connection between folks that love the game of golf and engineering that it just, that there's that scientific wonder 
that kind of connects the two likes that, yeah, this really works for people of this mindset. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're an engineer, you're probably naturally curious about how things work and why things work. And at some point, as you progress in your golfing career, you start to make those cause and effect connections. You're like, okay, now, wait a second. I don't think that was my swing. So what was going on there? Was it something with the equipment? Was it something with my golf ball? Was there some other factor? And you start to think about those things. And, you know, those things obviously lead to uh, trying to learn a little bit more about why certain equipment does what. And, you know, if you make enough of those, asking up those questions in your mind, yeah, I guess you end up in the golf industry like I did. You talked about your first job out of college having nothing to do with golf, but I guess it did have to do with thrust and launch. I mean, if, if you really want to go in deep into it. <laughs> well, it was an interesting job. I'll give it that. It was in naval nuclear propulsion for Westinghouse under a government contract. So, I mean, I think if anything else, I got to learn that there were a lot of really smart engineers in the world, way smarter than me. Um, but they couldn't always express themselves and they couldn't always explain what they were trying to do. So I always sort of love being a bridge between the really good engineers and either management or people that were creating a product or, or uh, assessing a product, a, a problem. So things like that. So I kind of found myself in this unique space between the really good engineers and the market side of the business, which in golf is now known these days as product creation. So I think there's a real need for people that live between, you know, R&D and sales and marketing and help shepherd products through, uh, making sure they're the right products for the, the right audience, position the right way, explain the right way. And I, you know, I built a career off that. And that really is the product managers, the project managers that are out there that combine. I mean, I want to say they combine the sciences because you take the engineering science, but they combine the social science aspects that you're talking about. Yeah, no question. And, you know, I know we want to talk about some technology in, in this discussion here some, at some point in time, but there's always that emotional connection. There's always that human element. And I always thought I always found that interesting, bridging the gap between the technology, the science and the human element, because all great technical breakthroughs, I think back to a lot of the stuff that we did at Titleist, were typically driven by some human element, whether it's a player wanting this or someone asking why they couldn't do that uh, or someone reacting to the way a club looked, sound, or felt. Uh, that led to a lot of good stuff when we were at, when I was working at Titleist. So there is that connection. I find that really important. Well, before we get to Titleist, you went and were working and creating golf clubs under the Fila brand. Yeah, I started working for a small manufacturer in Phoenix, Arizona called Reflex. And I was in my you know early 20s. And this inventor that I came across during my golf pro days was like, he had some putter, he had a putter patent. So he wanted to produce some putters, but he also wanted to do a full line. So he's like, hey, I think you should get on a plane and go over and deal with some you know factories and foundries and in China and Taiwan and put together a product line for me. So that was a great experience for me. Uh, and that business eventually became the license E for Fila Golf. And we did a line of Fila Golf equipment, which kind of in a weird full circle thing, um, Titleist, the Accushioned company who I spent so many years with was acquired by Gene Yoon, who, you know, owned the Fila brand globally. And so that, that was just an odd tie-off there from my early days to my Titleist career. 
When you go from a small operation like that, though, the next stop for you was with Maxfly. And I mean, suddenly now you were in the big golf business. I was. Like I said, I kind of worked my way up the food chain, which was really cool. So Maxfly was a golf ball company first. That They actually it was Dunlop Slasinger Sports Group. So they owned the Dunlop, Maxfly, and the Slasinger brands. I primarily worked on Maxfly. And Maxfly had a pretty successful golf ball business, challenging really Titleist at that point for number two. And they wanted to expand, grow their revenue. So they wanted to get in clubs and they hired me as the club guy. And, you know, I thought, okay, I'm walking into a pretty big company that's going to have more resources. Well, that wasn't actually the case. There was myself and one of the engineers in the plant, a process engineer who liked golf clubs. And we were the golf club team. So, uh, you know, we got to do a lot of cool stuff. It, it, it resulted in uh, a couple of neat things. There was a product called VHL, variable hosel length, which was uh, the first time that I was able to, you know, develop a con uh, concept and, and get it patented. And then there was the start of working with craftsmen like Tad Moore. So we launched the, the Tad Moore line of putters. We eventually did some Tad Moore wedges, which never got a lot of air play but was an interesting thing that kind of fed nicely into what I did at Titleist. So Maxfly was a great experience for uh, exposing me to um, people, uh, process, and, and ultimately really good product. Next after Maxfly though came what, what I mean you have to call a life-changing job. I guess all jobs are life-changing but you go to Titleist. How did that opportunity come about? Yeah, I mean, I spent, you know, a little more than three years at Maxfly and it was great learning ground and kind of gave me the confidence to make the next step. So I sort of had my eyes and ears open and Titleist knocked on the door. And at that point in time, you know, Wally Uline, the CEO of Titleist, wanted to assemble a team to really grow the club business because Titleist obviously was an established leader, longtime leader in the market great brand name, just really a great company and, and a great way of doing things. And so he put together a team and, and, and uh, was smart enough to locate that team in Southern California, which is really kind of the hotbed of golf club activity, instead of putting them in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, where the title's headquarters were. So, you know, that was the start of really something amazing that, you know, kind of made me who I am as a professional you know, back in those days, the Titleist club business was in the tens of millions of dollars. And when I left 21 years later, it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So it was it was a great ride. And there was so many great people and smart people involved that, you know, that I got exposed to, that I got to, to work with, that uh, it definitely made me who I am as a golf professional in this industry today. Do you remember your first project there? Yeah, I mean, I think my first project was to put some graphics on the back of a of a graphite shaft, um, and we had the DCI brand, and we wanted to uh, sort of accentuate the DCI name. Like, it was a good product; not enough people knew about it. It was fairly conservative, so we we came up with some really crazy bold graphics with these huge letters DCI on the back of the shaft. So it was as much a, you know, a, a product creation type project rather than a, a product and technical project. Um, but it really grabbed people's attention. And, you know, that was really the start of, um, of trying some things to grow the Titleist club business. And, you know, fortunately, we were given the ability to, to do some things like that, certainly make some mistakes along the way. 
um, but also learn. So that was that was an interesting first project. Well, and it's kind of indicative of what Titleist had to offer, that they had the resources that they could dedicate somebody to things that specific, that they really, okay, this is what we need to work on. We can dedicate people to, to work on that one thing and really try to make it better, even if it's just visibility. Yeah, we were really grabbing onto a lot of things at that point in time. I mean, Titleist up until that point for clubs were really known as bullseye putters and this kind of fledgling custom fitting effort that was tied to DCI irons. They were one of the first. And so how can we grow and expand off that? So the first step was, hey, let's not only offer steel shafts, let's offer graphite and let's brand them DCI. But that also led us to really start to think about where the iron business needed to go, which led to AP irons. We had very little presence in metal woods. Um, we had a couple of really traditional lines. Um, we tried to get into the titanium market with the howitzer, which ultimately led to uh, the 900 series metals, which had a long successful run for Titleist. So, you know, kind of brick by brick, uh, category by category, we started to build the Titleist club business. You started there in 1995. That really is the beginning of what, what I would call just an explosive period of, of golf club development. I mean, it was there that all companies really, it just blossomed. And so you got to see all of these advances come one after another, whether it was from Titleist or other brands, everybody had something new almost with every season. Yeah, there was a lot going on back then. I mean, Callaway was sort of at the starting gate at that point. TaylorMade was really starting to do some innovative things. Um, in a way, that sort of allowed us at Titleist to sort of fly under the radar screen as well, because those two brands typically were the ones battling it out. You know, Ping was Ping, and they were kind of chugging along. Um, but it was, a, it was a really cool time because technology was moving in, in larger sort of leaps and bounds with a lot of different things, design, material, construction. I mean, just the size alone of golf clubs, the ability to put weight where you want it. There was a lot of cool things going on. Um, and, you know, Titleist uh, kind of did it its own way as well, which, I, you know, back going back to the human element, I think Wally was smart enough to incorporate and want to incorporate, you know, master craftsmen like Scotty Cameron and Bob Vokey. And that, to me, that dovetailed well with the experience I had with Tad Moore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not not only was there an explosion of technology going on, but just back to this whole thing that, you know, no matter about the technology, there's always this human element that's important. Well, and you that leads right into you from a marketing perspective is was the messaging different when you would go from, say, a Pro V1 ball to talking about Vokey wedges to talking about Scotty Cameron putters? Yeah, I mean, not only was it different from golf balls, it was different, you know, by category, driver, fairway, hybrid, iron, wedge, putter, you know, you could argue there's six categories of equipment in golf. Uh, You really had to talk about each of them differently. And certainly when there was a master craftsman involved, you know, you had this cult of personality that you had to mix into that discussion. So, I mean, there was a lot going on. There was a lot to talk about, a lot to sink your teeth into, which was really fun. And, and you know, the one thing about Titleist is, that, you know, Wally would say to us, hey, you guys don't own the Titleist brand name. You lease it from the golf ball guys. So don't do anything to damage it. <laughs> so we had to be careful and we had to be thoughtful and we had to really, you know, 
um, not do anything to damage the incredible position that Titleist had developed and generated through decades of leadership on the golf ball side. Prior to the 90s, the, the, there hadn't been much development in golf clubs. It, it, there just there had been some evolutions, but nothing that you would call really earth-shattering like was happening during that time. And from a marketing sales perspective, I could see it going either way. I could see people being really excited about all this new stuff, or I could see people who are really ingrained in the industry saying, eh, clubs don't change that much. This is all a bunch of hooey. You know, I mean, I wouldn't undersell the 80s. I mean, there was the transition from wood to metal that started True. there. So that was a big one. Um, certainly, you know, there was this traditional aspect of golf that, golf equipment that a club had to look a certain way. It could only be a certain size. I think as the materials and technology improved, a lot of that got torn down those barriers. Uh, we learned how to make, you know, bigger, hollower, thinner, faster equipment acceptable to people in terms of look, sound, and feel. And, and the titles, we really valued that, you know, that was as important as the design itself and the engineering itself. Uh, we, we tried not to lose sight of that. And that led to, you know, some really um, products that were more advanced than their predecessors, but still very traditional. You know, the 900 series Metalwoods and 975D driver, the first set of AP2 irons, products like that. I mean, those were products that a tour player would put down and go, yep, no problem. I can play that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they had a lot more technology and improved performance in them. People who listen to the show have heard this before. I didn't start playing golf till... I was 24. So really, when you're starting at Titleist, I'm just picking up the game. Uh, and I remember talking with a professional as I had improved my game, taken lessons, gotten better, and I was looking to get quality clubs. Uh, talking to a club professional, and he was, again, we're talking in the early 90s, he was really, no, oh, you really should check out these Titleist clubs. And I didn't understand that it would be a process of getting fit, that it was going to be building clubs to my specifications. And looking back now, it's like, of course he thought that was the way to go. He was saying, don't buy something off the rack, buy something that we that we build. And it's a message that should go to anybody that, that really, once they start to get serious about golf, they should consider. Yeah, no question. I mean, that's extremely true nowadays because premium golf equipment is expensive. You know, you're investing in an expensive piece of equipment and you, it should really do what you want it to do. So you should, you should make that investment because you're probably going to keep that piece of equipment in your bag longer than you used to. And it's definitely worth going through that process. And it, it's funny how that process evol has evolved too. And some of the barriers there have been torn down. There was a lot of resistance to that fitting initially, like either, oh, I don't need it because I'm too traditional or, oh, it's too intimidating a process. You know, I don't want some guy standing behind me watching me hit golf balls. I mean, right. a, a lot of those barriers have been ripped down. And I think because of it, you're seeing these just incredible gains in, you know, how we can make golfers better nowadays. It's a discussion that I've had with, with fitters and with people that are pro fitting. There are people that are anti-fitting that they think that it, you're, you're going to be so nervous that it doesn't do its job. But I think that's kind of up to the environment and up to the individual to find a place where they can be comfortable. I mean, some fitting's best done on a range. Some is best done in a studio because that's where people just feel comfortable. 
Yeah, no question. A, a lot of people are, you know, hey, I'm not consistent enough to, to hit the ball to go through a fitting process. That's really the exact opposite. You know, you do want to see the misses. You want to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And over a fitting session, you're going to get enough good shots to be able to evaluate a player. So, but you want to see their tendencies. And and I agree with you nowadays. I mean, one of the cool things I think that's going on right now in golf is this trend that, you know, there's a lot more ways to play golf and it's not only outdoors. So mm-hmm. indoor facilities, I remember back in the early days in Titleist, like we, we were very loyal to ball flight. You had to hit balls outside. You had to see ball flight. You had to see what the, and experience what the ball did from start to finish. Nowadays with indoor facilities and indoor technology, you know, whether it's fitting instruction practice or say playing around a golf into a simulator, you know, really all those stigmas have been torn away and there's so many more golfers experience in the game through some type of indoor facility or indoor experience. And that's really great for golf. In 2019, you joined Hanma and I have to imagine that that was a very big change uh, because I'm familiar with the operation there and it's definitely totally different than what you were doing at Titleist. Yeah, no question. Um, I mean, that was a whole different deal. It, 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 Mark King of TaylorMade fame was doing some consulting for the Hanma brand, which is a Japan, very traditional, historic Japanese brand, 60 years old, really built on craftsmanship. Not very well known outside of Japan, but it was acquired by a, a very enthusiastic, chi- wealthy Chinese um, um, let's just call him a billionaire because that's what he was. So he bought the Hanma brand and uh, was very passionate about golf. And so you had this really interesting mix of cultures, not just management cultures, but you know the way you approached product and the way you approached marketing and the way you went to market. So that, you know, very different. For me, it was exciting, you know, as a product guy, because first and foremost, I put on the product hat to work with a group, the R&D team in Sakata, Japan, who had, you know, decades of experience, guys that have worked in that factory for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Literal craftsmen, craftsmen. Yeah, master craftsmen. And that was fun. And the the challenge of putting together a product line, not just for the U.S. for Hanma, but globally, helping them improve globally and having to work with that group over there instead of, you know, being able to walk down the hallway, Titleist, and go have a meeting with your with the R&D guys was a different challenge. So, um, but Hanma was a, was a wonderful brand. The product experience was fantastic. You know, I, I don't think the the folks that, that own Hanma know exactly what they want it to be these days. Uh, outside of the Asian markets, they're still trying to figure out the U.S. market. And, uh, you know, but if they do, they've got this tremendous product heritage there that they can leverage off of. Well, I spoke uh, last fall here on the range with Marnie Inez from Titleist Irons Development, and he talked about project where they were given free reign to create the best iron they could with no cost concerns. They just said, go for it. Just whatever you can come up with. And, and that's the concept irons that are out there now. And in some ways, I feel that was kind of the goal with Hanma is you make the best club that you can make. Don't worry about the materials. If it costs that much more, we'll charge that much more. That's not an issue. Yeah, it's fun when you're given that ability. Marty is a tremendous engineer and really just a tremendous manager of projects and people. I was fortunate to work with him at Titleist as they were starting the concept irons. 
Um, Concept, you know, one of the early products from Concept was actually a product that they marketed under the TMB name and, and, and iron with just an, a, a crazy amount of tungsten in it and some different construction techniques, which was fantastic. So, but yeah, when you're not given a budget, it's, it's always fun. And the Hanma Berez line is definitely like that. Um, you know, what can we do to make this thing perform as well as possible. But not only that is the amount of money that was invested in the cosmetic side, which I thought was really fun, whether it was the paint process or, you know, gold plating or use of precious metals in the ferrule, um, just a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, exotic materials wound into the graphite shafts. Some made their own graphite shafts. Just, uh, just being involved with all that was really, you know, sort of the shackles were taken off and like, hey, let's see what we can come up with. Well, and it opens your eyes to see that how we view golf and golf clubs in this country is not how they're seen elsewhere in the world. I mean, everybody has their different culture, and that does affect how they view golf. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think you know, the Asian markets allowed for a, a product line like Berez to exist, um, where it was as much you know, a performance product line, but, you know, it was also a, a luxury buy. It was a status buy. Um, and you bought it because you could, you know, it was impossible to justify paying that kind of a price. And, you know, by the time you put together a set of Honma Brez product, it could be fifty, sixty thousand $60,000. You couldn't justify that solely on the performance of the club, but the status symbol that it brought, um, yeah, that was that was interesting to be able to kind of play in that field for a while, and it was fun to to do the what they call the Berezo Seven line. Uh, so that was a really fun experience for me. Now you work on improvement. You advise the board with V One Sports. You founded your own brand and making the swing a line. Let's talk about V One first because that gets into true new technology, uh, not just what's in the clubs, but what's in our swings. And then learning how to apply that to our game of golf. Yeah, so I, I'm actually back working full time again for V1 Sports. So it, it'll be my second stint at the company. After, after I left Titleist, I did start my own company called Swingalign, which you mentioned, which is training aids, and we can get to that. But um, I, I had a friend who had invested in V1, who was on the board, and they had to do some things with the founder of the company there to sort of move him off to the side and let the company kind of grow and flourish. So I went back to V1 Sports, which is based in Michigan, for about 18 months as interim CEO to kind of help set them on the right path. And that was a whole different you know, set of challenges and opportunities. And uh, then I came back to California to do the Honda gig. And now I'm back with V1 again as CRO, so Chief Revenue Officer basically in charge of sales and marketing and the product side of the business. And yeah, V1 is a company that's founded on improvement. So they make instruction software, video analysis software, both for professionals, golf professionals and instructors and consumers. They have two consumers app, consumer apps. And they make hardware systems um, and they integrate certain technologies into those systems like launch monitors and pressure mats and things like that. So it's really all about improvement with V1. They also have a nice uh, facility consulting business going to where there's so many um, golf courses and individuals looking at putting in some kind of indoor facility. I don't know if it's, you know, that the top golf trend or not, where golf can be both, you know, 
uh, instruction, fitting, practice, and entertainment. You know, hey, let's throw a couple of simulators next to our men's grill and have our own little mini entertainment venue right. um, where you can also do teaching and, and club fitting, by the way. So uh, V1 is is uh, in a good place right now and positioned well for some of the, the macro trends that are starting, that are happening in this in the industry. Even before COVID hit, there was that trend. I think Topgolf opened eyes to things that were already kind of there, but that you can create what would be a modern version of a bowling alley, but with golf inside where it's, it's, it's a social place, but you also do your physical activity and have fun. Yeah. So, I mean, V1 has got a, a, a very interesting product line and ecosystem, if you will. They've got two consumer apps, V1 Golf, which basically helps you improve your swing, V1 Game, which helps you improve your score. I mean, you know, as a golfer, you got to learn how to swing first, then you got to take that swing to the course and you got to learn how to score. So V1 can help you on both sides and whether you want to do it yourself with an app or you want to use that app to connect through a network of instructors who you can send your swing videos to or your shot data from a round of golf. That's the V1 game app. It collects data. It does GPS tracking, but it's also got auto shot tracking so you can learn a lot about a golfer's tendencies you can send that to a golf professional and they can send you back advice on how to improve even even give you a digital or remote lesson where you know they're going to look at your swing they're going to telestrate on it um, they're going to give you some tips and drills either based on what they're seeing in your swing or what they're seeing in the data that comes from V1 game, your shot tracking data as to how you actually play on the golf course. So it's a really great ecosystem for making golfers better. So many people are coming to the game that had never played, that haven't played in years. And the exciting part is they're also going to the range that basically they're, they're taking to the game like never before in terms of wanting to just go any place they can swing a golf club. And this is going to give them the tools that if they want to do it on their own, if they want to incorporate something that will help their game while they're at the range, this will fit right in. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, the, the, the recent part of my career is really focused on helping to make golf better, either through the, the training aid company or through V1. And you're right, there's so many golfers coming into the game or coming back to the game. You know, hey, props to golf for being the shining star through COVID and bringing a lot of players into the game, really welcoming them into the game and, and, and in different formats. So you can be a golfer now if you've, you know, just gone to top golf and hit, you know, hit some balls in that entertainment environment or hit in a simulator and, you know, eventually work your way to playing on the golf course. But, uh, you know, being able to, to, to make products, whether they're digital products or they're physical products, like a swing trainer that you wear to help golfers along that journey. Um, to me, that's, that's pretty rewarding. Well, and that leads us right to swing a line where you do help players focus on swing basics that will help improve really anyone's golf game because we all can get reminders on fundamentals. Yeah, no, no question. There's certain, I guess you'd call them basic truths or things like that, that, you know, you got to be able to set up properly. You got to be able to aim it where you want to hit it. You have to be able to make the, you know, the proper movement, you know, rotation um, to generate power, keep your swing timing in place, connection, whatever you want to call it. But swing align is a wearable trainer that, that helps you with all that. Starts with alignment, 
works through takeaway and rotation, can even help you get on the right swing plane, and then provides you know what we call connection or arm body synchronization throughout the entire swing. Uh, it's really a versatile trainer, which is which is really why we decided to to bring it to market because there wasn't anything else that was that in our opinion was that versatile and that effective. So that's been fun. And you know we just added a new putting product to the lineup called Goalpost. So we got you covered tee to green, which is which is cool. I would hope that that's also booming like the rest of the golf industry seems to as people come to the game and are looking really to answer some of their basic swing questions. Yeah, it's nice to be able to provide, you know, help, guidance, uh, whatever you want to call it, to a, a beginning golfer um, all the way up to the pros. I mean, we have PGA Tour players using Swing Align product because, you know, they, they struggle with the fundamentals from time to time as well. Alignment's, you know, a good one. It's easy to get out of alignment. A lot of times when you're a better player, you don't necessarily lose your swing. Sometimes you lose your setup. And that can lead that can lead to bad things in the swing. So you know, there's a reason why you always see either a player's instructor or their caddy standing behind them as they practice. It's to check their alignment. So if you don't have an instructor or a caddy to check your alignment, we have a device that will help you do that and uh, and help you do the things that any golfer can do well, like setting up to the golf ball. Not everyone can swing like a tour player, but everyone should be able to set up like a tour player. So our device helps you with that. As you look at products over the years and you look at engineering development growth, obviously technology is going to help every player, but is there really any technology that can surpass what comes out of being properly fit, having clubs that are right for you? Well, I think club fitting is certainly one part of it. Um, and an important part of it, but it's not the only part of it. I, I don't know if I'd call it the most important part. I mean, being a club guy, I'm 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 a little biased there, so I know how important club fitting is. But you know, lessons, instruction, coaching, practice, fitness, club fitting, you know, they're all important uh, on your journey as a golfer. Um, and if you're the kind of golfer that wants to get better or at least enjoy the game more, you're probably going to pick one of those and, and spend some time on it. Um, but you're right. I, I can't encourage people enough to get, to get properly fit for their clubs. Um, I think that's essential. You find a good fitter, you're going to find somebody that really will fulfill your needs in so many different ways, performance, but also your emotional needs to the club, what you like in the sound and the feel and the look. I mean, it, there's a lot of aspects that go in besides just what happens when you swing it. Well, you're, you're bringing up that human connection again, which I think is, is such an important part of this. You know, even if you go through the mechanical process of being fit, and I was fortunate enough to work for two club brands that were very in tune with look, sound, and feel, Titleist, and then Hanma. Uh, that's an important part. I mean, I think as a player, you need to feel good about what you're using. You know, you want it to look good. You want it to sound good. You want it to feel good. You can't forget about those items. Certainly, mechanically, you want it to perform well. You want the, the length of the clubs and the lie of the clubs and the shaft flex to be properly fit to you. All those elements. But I also think there's this emotional connection you have to have with your golf clubs that, you know, you, you want to feel good about what you're playing. That leads us perfectly into how we always like to wrap up our talks here on the range by jumping in the Wayback Machine 
And for you, there are plenty of choices. But as you think to clubs you worked on, you marketed, and of course, clubs you played, is there one that jumps out above the rest and holds a special place in your heart? Wow. Do I have to pick one? Well, we would try to limit it to a maybe just a couple. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, having spent 21 years of titles, there were so many of those moments, which was fantastic. Um, you know, I would say on the whole, you know, human technology connection thing, which has sort of been the theme, uh, Vokey spin milled wedges. You know, I think we're up, I think titles is up to SM8. Mm-hmm. And, and the letters SM have almost kind of lost meaning. People forget that that actually stood for spin milled. So there was some really groundbreaking, you know, face and groove machining technology that Titleist went through uh, to develop the SM line. And when it was launched, it was groundbreaking. I mean, for a lot of reasons, for that technology, but also for having a guy like Bob who spent his whole life designing golf clubs, knew everything about a wedge and how the sole should function. But that spin mill technology was a lot of fun. Um, you know, and we were pushed by Phil Mickelson, who at that time was on the title of staff. Like he wanted to spin it more and more. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted to cut the edges of those grooves as sharp as he could so that after he hit a shot with them, you would literally have to take the ball out of play. He was okay with that. Um, but, you know, applying a technology like that to wedges so that it was the right amount of spin, it was more spin than players were getting. It wasn't negatively affecting their trajectory. It was allowing them to hit shots around the green that they hadn't been able to hit before. Um, you know, while still not forgetting about the looks and the sound and the feel of a wedge, which has to be very important, let alone how it goes through the ground. I mean, wedges are just such a fascinating product that that whole launch was definitely one of my favorites. And then coming up with the spin mill logo and the name, uh, it just all came together. And, you know, at that point in time, Titleist had no wedge business. Cleveland was by far the leader. And I mean, I think, you know, the history Titleist is definitely the dominant wedge player in the game today. So that was just a lot of fun for all those things to come together. And that definitely is one of my favorites as I look back on my career. Certainly has to be one that you think about is, yeah, those wedges sure saved me a bunch when I was out on the course as well. No question. (laughs) Chris, you've been in the industry through its rise and you continue to help players enjoy the game on the range and on the golf course with everything you do. I hope you recognize and appreciate the impact that you've helped make, but have made yourself. Thanks for joining us here on the range. Ralph, I appreciate that. It's been, you know, such a thrill to be able to work in golf my whole career and make a nice living out of it. And, you know, as you said, I I feel like I have contributed something to the game in some small way, shape or form. And uh, it's been uh, it's been very rewarding. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ralph. That was Chris McGinley joining us here on the range. I've spoken with Chris many times about Titleist Golf Clubs, V1, and other projects. And as you can tell, he knows the business. And he wants what the true club folks always want. To help improve players' performances on the course. It can be that simple, and in this case, it really is. Before we go, this past weekend we saw the first golf major of 2021 in the ANA Inspiration in Rancho Mirage, California. Patty Tavitanikit earned her first LPGA win, and of course, it's her first major. What may have been downplayed, though, was that the par 5 18th hole played as a true island green. Gone were the stands from the past years and the wall from 2020, and suddenly, strategy was in play. 
In recent years, there's been a lot of chatter about backstopping on the greens as players may be judicious in whether or not they mark their balls. What we have seen since the COVID restart, though, are actual backstops. Walls behind the greens that may display a sponsor name, but also protect players from the dangers of going long. This has been an issue on every professional tour, and it's a disgrace. Going long should be penalized, and sometimes harshly. Instead, for the pros who should be judged most closely, it isn't that big of a deal, it seems. People talk about bifurcation and think it only applies to golf balls, but folks, it is well in play already, thanks to professional golf course setups. Now, what's new for 2021 in golf equipment? Find out with the Golf Spotlight as we are dropping new features all the time, looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. Go to thegolfspotlight.com, click on the YouTube subscribe button, and turn on those notifications so you never miss one of our features. There is a lot to catch up on. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at thegolfspotlight. We are also on Twitter at golfspotlight. We welcome your comments everywhere. You've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of The Range, so let's grab our clubs and work on our game, and then hit the course. After all, we can all get a little bit better. And we'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.